Well, several years ago, a Texan named Rue Ferguson decided that it was time to figure out what to do with an old painting that had been hiding behind a door in his house. He didn't really know much about the painting other than that his family had told them that it had been passed down for generations for at least 80 years. Uh, but other than that, he, he wasn't sure. He knew, he, he at least thought that it had been purchased in Mexico. But he wondered what, what to do with it. And so he did what many Americans apparently do, but he packed it up in his vehicle and he found the nearest stop, found the nearest stop on the Antiques Roadshow. After sen sending the painting away to experts, Rue was surprised to find out that this painting that hung behind the door for years and years was actually a, an original print. Not only was it an original print, but it was from 1904. He was told that it also had been a missing piece from famed 19th century painter Diego Rivera. The painting expert that he spoke with, a woman named Colleen Fesco, went on to inform Rue that the painting was deemed valuable for multiple reasons. Not only was it old, and not only was it missing, but it was also one of Rivera's earliest works. Fesco eventually revealed to Rue that the painting was worth over a million dollars. You know, I don't know about you, but every time I hear a story like that, I immediately think about my grandparents' home and wonder, like, is there something up in the attic that, that's, you know, worth a ton of money and I just need to stumble upon it and, you know, send it in and figure out how much it's worth. But I also think about how much we also, we all love to receive a good report like that. How many of us would want to hear good news like that? The reality is we're all thankful to hear an encouraging report. Think about how we feel when an employer calls us in to an, un, uh, an unforeseen meeting only to tell us that we're going to receive a promotion or maybe an unexpected bonus. Or think about how do you feel when you get a test grade back and your grade is much better than you expected to get. Or maybe it's news from the doctor that you've gotten a clean bill of health or that the cancer is gone. We all love to get good reports. You know, on the other hand, there are places where it just seems like we never get a good report, like the dentist, for example. I don't know if you think about this, but the dentist, really, the best news you can get at the dentist is no news, which is you don't have cavities and there isn't a problem. But the, the best news is, hey, keep doing what you've been doing so that you don't get gingivitis and you don't get cavities and so on and so forth. I, I don't know about you, but when, I, when I'm sitting in the dentist chair, I wish that for once the dentist would say, your teeth look great, and they look so great, I'm gonna give you $100 because, because you've taken good care of them. Obviously, that doesn't happen when we go to the dentist. Or how about the car dealership? You know, I made the mistake of getting an oil change at, at the dealership a couple of years ago. I had a coupon, I thought, you know, oh, it's a coupon, it's a good deal, let me go take it in to the dealership. And so I go in for what I'm expecting to be just, you know, an hour oil change, standard, drop it off, you know, let, let them do their thing, wash the car, bring it back to me, and then I can go, go on my way. Well, you know, after 15 minutes or so, they say, hey, Mr. Mr. Springer, can we, can we talk to you for a second? 
And I'm like, well, I know that they didn't finish the oil change in 15 minutes, so this, this isn't good. And they, they casually tell me, hey, we, you know, we just decided we'd do a comprehensive check on your vehicle just to see you know, if everything looked good. And of course, if you've shared that experience like I have, then you know that they rattle off this long list of things that are wrong with your car, and that if you don't do the things that they tell you to do, then your car's you know, gonna fall apart and your family's at risk. And so begin, what, be, what begins to happen is you negotiate with them which things are you gonna take care of and which things will you d- delay uh, to a later date. Well, all that to say, I think we're thankful for all sorts of good reports. There's often a sigh of relief, a fulfillment of hope, and sometimes a sense of joy. We can all relate to getting good news, especially good news about something that we were, we were concerned about. Well, I, I bring this up because this is the feeling that's captured here from the Apostle Paul when he writes this letter to the, the Thessalonians. You see, Paul had come to Thessalonica a short time prior, and he had preached the gospel in Thessalonica. We're told in Acts 17 that he had spent much of his time in the synagogues reasoning and explaining and proving and proclaiming that Jesus was the Christ. We learn from Luke's account that many Jews were jealous of Paul's ministry success. And in an effort to stop them, these Jews grabbed some wicked men, they formed a mob, and they set the city in an uproar. Eventually, this mob sent Paul and the men that he was with out, out of the city, and they went and fled to Berea and Athens and eventually Corinth. You know, most historians... Most historians agree that Paul likely spent somewhere between one month and six months in, in Thessalonica, ministering to the people. In, in many ways, it was a really brief period of time. And here he is a, a short period of time later, maybe a year later, in Corinth, and he's wondering what happened in Thessalonica when he was forced to leave, what's happened since then? Has the church grown? Ha, have people deserted the faith? What's, what's going on in Thessalonica? And thankfully, Timothy and Silas meet up with him in Corinth, and they give him an encouraging report. They say, hey, Paul, there's good news. What happened in Thessalonica, it didn't just stop in Thessalonica, but it's continued there and gone forth to other places. And in response, Paul is so thankful for this good news. He's grateful, he's filled with joy, and he does what all good Christians do. He writes a thank you note. Well, actually, he writes a thank you letter to the Thessalonians. And he says, I'm so thankful for what has happened among you. He writes not only to thank them and to encourage them, but he also spurs them on to keep doing what they've been doing. Keep doing this more and more. So what I want to do with you all is I want us to read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 so that we can hear Paul's encouragement. We can hear what has he said about this church that's inspired him and encouraged him after receiving this great news. So follow along with me as we read chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you all in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word 
but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, if you're taking notes, then you'll see that the title of the sermon is A Church Worth Imitating. And before we dissect this passage together, I want to let you know what my desire and hope is for you all tonight as we, as we walk through this passage. Well, my hope is two things, really. One, that you would be inspired by this missional church, that you would look at them and say, we want to be like them. As a, as a congregation that Cornerstone would say, this is the kind of church that we long to be, we desire to be more and more. And my hope is not only would you desire to, not only would you be inspired by them, but you would desire to imitate the church at Thessalonica. So your inspiration would lead to a desire to imitate. So here's what we're gonna do together. We're gonna, we're gonna make three observations, just three simple observations about the Thessalonians that reveal that they're both a healthy church and a missional church. So if you're taking notes, the first thing that we see is that they were a people, a church that received the gospel. Paul tells us in verse 5 that not only had the gospel come to them, but it came in power and in, in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. What Paul's doing here is he's emphasizing that this message was powerful and it brought radical transformation to the lives of the Thessalonians. You know, he tells us in verse 9 that people from Macedonia and Achaia have reported back to Paul about them. And essentially, this is what those people are saying. They're saying, have you heard what happened to the Thessalonians? Don't you remember them? They were pagan idol worshipers, and they wanted nothing to do with God. Well, not now. They actually have turned from their idols, and they want something to do with the living God. They've abandoned their idols, and they've exchanged them for God. Not only have they turned to God, but they're actually submitting their lives to him. They're surrendering to him, they're serving him, and that so much so that they brought the gospel to us. These people in Macedonia and Achaia are saying, look, the Thessalonians came to us with the gospel, and it's radically tra transformed our lives, and we want to report back the work that's happening there among them. You see, this is what happens when we receive the gospel. It changes our desires. It orients our lives in a new direction, it gives us a new purpose and a new calling, and when that happens, there's, there's no doubt about it. We're not the same people we used to be. There's clear evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in us. Maybe you've watched that happen here at Cornerstone. You've seen somebody's life. You've watched what their life was like before Christ, and you've seen evidence of what their life looks like now. You know, one of the privileges of working in full-time ministry is, 
is that I, I've watched this happen a lot of times, and I get to see this happen on the college campus. I get to see college students who didn't know anything about Christ come to know him and to begin to walk with him and to see their desires changed. You know, some of you were here back in the spring when I gave an update, and we showed a video about a girl named Risa from Elon University. Risa was an exchange student from Japan. She, prior to coming to college, had never heard the gospel. She came to, she came to school. Providentially, she met some students that were involved in our ministry uh, on campus, and, and these girls said, hey, we wanna, we wanna reach international students, so let's think for how to serve them and minister to them. Let's make some food for them. And so these girls at Elon, they met Risa, uh, they began to hang out with her. They began to have spiritual conversations, and Risa was interested. She started asking questions. She started saying, you know, tell me more about Jesus. Tell me more about the Bible. And so they began studying the Bible together. They started going to church together. And, and within a few months, Risa came to faith in Christ. And over the next couple of years, we watched as Risa's life was totally transformed. She came on a couple summer projects with us. She was discipled by our staff girl. And when she graduated, we sent her back. She wanted to go back, but we sent her back to Japan to live with her people and to minister the gospel to her family and friends. And I talked with Risa not too long ago and just asked her, hey, what has that transition been like? And she said, it's, it's, really, it's been hard in some ways, but it's been so encouraging in others. She said that within a few weeks, she was able to bring her mom to church her mom had never, never stepped foot in a church before, never really heard much about Christ except for what Reese had told her. Her mom started going to church with her. Not only did her mom start going, but friends from high school said, hey, can you tell us more about this? Can we come, come to church with you? It's an English-speaking church, and they wanted to, one, hear more about Reese's faith, but two, they also wanted to learn English, and so they thought this would be a good opportunity to do that. And one of the things that Risa told me is that not only was she doing this, but that the pastor of this English-speaking church had asked Risa, said, hey, would you mind translating the sermons to Japanese? So Risa sent me a picture, and the pastor of this congregation, a small congregation, is standing there preaching, and Risa's off to the side speaking in Japanese to those who were in attendance from Japan. And uh, just a powerful picture of a girl who just a few years ago had never heard the gospel, and just a few years later is actually translating a sermon to an unreached people group. What, what a powerful thing to see. And Risa's story is the kind of thing and was the kind of thing that was happening all over Thessalonica. Now, I know in a room like this that there are probably some of you that would say, I know that I haven't received the gospel. I know that that's not me. My life isn't marked by that kind of transformation. I don't have some radical story. I know that I haven't really given my life to Christ and placed my faith in him. Well, I just want to encourage you. Uh, one, I want to say thank you for coming. This is a great place to investigate and explore. But I want to encourage you to, to hear what Paul says in this passage. He tells the Thessalonians, look, you're loved by God. And not only are you loved by him, but you've been chosen by him. And the reason that Paul can say this is because he knows that the gospel has come to these people and that it's meant to lead to transformation. And so I just would say, if you're here tonight and you haven't received the gospel, then know that God gives us the gift of the gospel and it's meant to be experienced. It's meant to be received. It's not meant just to be heard, but it's meant to actually be taken in and experienced. I'd encourage you to receive the gospel if you haven't. 
Now, I also know that there are probably some of you in this room who aren't sure, really maybe aren't sure what, if you're a Christian. You know, I spend a lot of my time on the college campus engaging with students, and I do a lot of what, a lot of what I do is trying to help college students figure out where they're at spiritually. And I would imagine in a room like this that there are some of you that are trying to figure that, figure that out for yourselves. Where exactly are you at spiritually? So I think this leads us to the question, how do, we, how do we know if we've received the gospel? How do we know if our lives have been transformed? Well, Paul gives us a few criteria in this passage to help us evaluate whether we've experienced this same kind of transformation. He tells us, first he tells the Thessalonians that he remembers their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. You know, I think these three categories encompass so much of the Christian life. And they can really serve as an evaluative tool for us. In fact, Paul often uses, if you read his letters, he often uses these three things, faith, hope, and love, to help kind of explain what, what it means to live a full Christian life. And so just a simple question for you all tonight is for you to ask yourselves, if you're wrestling and questioning, it's, is your life marked by faith in Christ? Is it marked by a love for God and a love for others? And do you actually hope in God's return, in Christ's return? You know, I think for me personally, when I really began to, to grow in the gospel and to mature as a Christian, that was one of the first things that changed is that I began to long for eternity. I recognized this is a short life and I want to be faithful in the life that God's given me, but I long to be with Christ. Do you long to be with Christ? That's a helpful, evaluative tool to know, has your life been transformed by the gospel? You know, Paul also mentions that these people, these Thessalonians, that they had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son. This really should be every Christian's testimony. Turning away from sin, turning toward Christ, serving him, and then waiting for his return. So let me ask you that same, the, the, the same litmus test. Have you turned from sin to Christ? And is your purpose to serve him and to wait for his return? Is that how you would describe your life and your desires? So the first thing that we notice about the, the Thessalonians is that they were a church that had received the gospel in power. The second thing that we see is that not only that, but they reproduced their lives. Paul mentions two critical things about how they multiplied and how they reproduced. First, he tells us that they became imitators of Paul and of the Lord. You know, this word uh, imitate literally means to mimic. It's where we get the word uh, mime from. So what Paul is saying is that the Thessalonians learned to mimic Paul and learned to mimic other mature Christians. You know, this isn't an isolated command in Scripture to imitate, but it's actually one that Paul often encourages believers to do. He often says to imitate him and to imitate Christ. Let me just give you a few examples of this. 1 Corinthians 11, 1 says this, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. 1 Corinthians 4, 16, Paul says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. And then in Philippians 3, 17, Paul says, Brothers, 
join me in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. So what does that mean? What does that mean for us? What does that mean for us today? What does it look like to imitate others? Well, it means that we need to ask ourselves, who are we becoming like? Who are we imitating? The reality is that we're all either becoming more like Christ or we're becoming more like someone or something else. You know, another way to think about this is to ask ourselves the question, who are we listening to? You know, one of the things that's unique about college ministry is that I spend a lot of my evenings on the campus. I don't work a typical kind of nine to five or eight to six or whatever you think of as a typical job, but I spend a lot of my time kind of more like 12 to 10. Or when I was uh, not married, it was like 12 to one or 2 a.m. some nights. And so it makes it really almost impossible to watch anything consistent on TV. You know, my, my wife and I don't watch a ton of TV, but thanks to the invention of Netflix and Amazon Prime, we actually can kind of catch up on shows. And uh, I mean, even if you have TV, that kind of seems to be the new way that people are consuming television is that they catch up by watching these uh, series. And one of the series that we've been watching over the last year or so is the, seri- the show called Suits. Some of you uh, maybe are familiar with Suits and have been watching it and following it. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with Suits, it's a show about a high-powered law firm in Manhattan that's run by kind of a group of young hotshot attorneys. And it's known for a lot of things, one of them being it's kind of quick banter and one-liners between people. And I realized that I was being a lot more influenced by Suits than I'd like to admit a few months ago. Uh, I realized this when I I found myself wanting to repeat and quote lines from Harvey Specter and Mike Ross, two of the main characters in the show. And there's there's one of the the phrases, they say a lot of different things, but one of the phrases they often say is is this line, uh, that's not a me problem, that's a you problem. And they'll say it in sort of this derogatory attitude, like, hey, that's not, that's not a me problem, that's a you problem. And, and I found myself, like, hanging out with people, like friends, co- college students, and there would be, you know, instances where someone would come to me with some situation, and in my, I didn't say it out loud, but in my head, I was thinking, that's not really a me problem, that's a you problem. And I, I just, I was convicted of that. I realized, man, I have, a, I have imitated and begun to imitate the way that these guys kind of live and interact and treat other people. And I was reminded of, of this isn't how Christ would treat others. I was reminded of what Paul says in Philippians 2 where he says, look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. You know, I think Jesus, he wouldn't say, that's not a me problem, that's a you problem. He would say, your problems are my problems, and I want to help fix your problems. And so I just, I share that as an example to say we so quickly and without even realizing can begin to imitate other people and other people that maybe are leading us astray from Christ. No, we need to be careful who we're imitating and that means we need to, we need to examine what, what kind of music do we listen to? What kind of movies do we watch? And what kind of people do we spend our time with? So then if we know we need to think about who we're imitating, who should we imitate? Well, we should imitate Christ and other Christians as they preach the word to us. Paul tells us this in verse six in this chapter. He says, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord for you received the word. You, the way that you demonstrated your imitation is you received the word that was being preached. We need to be asking ourselves, if we're Christians, what are we doing to position ourselves 
to hear the word of God from others. Just a few applications for you in the congregation. Children, you need to go, fi- go home and find someone a little older than you who you can learn from. Ask them to help you grow in your faith. You know, one of the things when I, when I grew up here and went, went to, was involved in the youth group in, in high school, one of the things that I regret is I didn't take advantage of getting together with people that were older and more mature than me as, as much as I should have. I remember Dave Block initiating to a group of us in high school and saying, you know, hey, I'd love to start a discipleship group and invest in you guys and help you grow in your faith. And, and honestly, me and the other guys that were in the youth group just kind of, we just didn't take advantage of that. And, and I just would encourage you, if you're in the youth group or you're a young person here, take advantage of those that are older and more mature than you. You know, women, go find someone more spiritually mature than you and ask them to pray with you. Ask them to study the scriptures with you. Ask them to talk about life and being a wife or a mom or what it's like to be single and to walk with God. Men, can we just be honest with ourselves for a second and acknowledge that we need help? I think, you know, that's, that's the first step, right? You gotta acknowledge that you don't have it all together. And so part of what it means to be a Christian as a man is to acknowledge we need Christ. And it also means we need to acknowledge we need one another and we need other mature men in the faith to help us grow spiritually. You know, I think as I said that, I heard several women say amen from the congregation. Uh, I think that's, a, that's an important thing. We need to find mentors who can tell us what it looks like to be a husband and to work a job as a Christian. You know, I've been so thankful to the ministry of Campus Outreach because it's instilled this value in me. I have a great value for older men investing in me. As I was preparing this sermon, I thought of at least, at least 10 or 12 men that over the last decade have influenced me in all sorts of ways. You know, one of the things that's been a blessing this past year is that I've gotten to meet with a mentor, a guy that works in Greensboro and uh, has, has been married for a long time and has several kids and grown kids. And we've just gotten together. We get together probably once a month and we grab lunch and we just talk about life. We talk about Major League Baseball. We talk about uh, buying cars, you know, and wisdom in buying cars. We've talked about plans for retirement, his retirement, not mine, uh, being an elder in the church sharing our faith with friends, leading our children, all sorts of things. And it's been so refreshing just to, to do that with another older brother, and I've learned so much from his example. So, Cornerstone, let me give you some, some homework. Go find someone. Go find someone that you can imitate and learn from and walk alongside. The second thing that we see is that not only does Paul say that they became imitators, but he says that they became examples In fact, he mentions that they became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Well, what did this look like? It means that their example was really evidenced in two ways, he tells us, at least in this passage. He says, they modeled the affliction that Paul and Christ had experienced, and they exemplified a joy in the Spirit. You know, these are two things that you just can't manufacture. They willingly embraced suffering when it came to them, and they were full of lasting joy in the midst of great trial. You know, brothers and sisters, we have a great opportunity to model to other Christians and to the world around us what it, what it looks like to suffer, what it looks like to endure suffering, and what it looks like to actually have joy and hope in the midst of those trials. 
So just a, qu a couple questions for us. How are we currently modeling suffering and embracing suffering? How are we modeling endurance? Would others describe us as being joy-filled people? Or do we just complain and groan and mumble throughout the midst of our circumstances? You know, one of the keys to being an example is having people around us to influence. So we need to be asking ourselves, who's actually becoming more like us? Is there anyone that wants to imitate us? Is there anyone that wants to follow our example? Do we have a life that's worth imitating? And what are we prepared to pass on? You know, as I was preparing this sermon, I kept getting this picture in mind. I'd seen the movie uh, Dunkirk recently, and so kind of war movies were on, on my mind. And I envisioned, I envisioned a young soldier off to battle, kind of totally unprepared for what it meant to be, a part, be involved in war. And I sort of imagined him in a bunker, in the heat of the battle, enemy fire coming, and he kind of looks in his bunker, and he realizes like, we're getting blown up, and we have no clue what we're doing. And, and so he sees on the other side of the bunker this older, at least older-looking, more mature soldier, and he kind of hunkers down, and he, get, he crawls up next to him, and he says, hey, hey, can you give me some advice? I have no idea what I'm doing here. And the older soldier looks at him for a second and says, are you talking to me? I, I just signed up because I... I wanted some friends, and the uniform looked really cool. Sorry, sorry, man, to burst your bubble, but I have no idea what I'm doing either. I don't know how to be a soldier. You know, I think far too often Christians live their lives like the older soldier who wears the uniform but has no real intention of engaging in the battle. I'll say that again. I think far too often Christians live their lives like the older soldier who wears the uniform but has no real intention of engaging in the battle. Cornerstone, let me tell you this. I work with the next generation. We need examples. We need people who have lives worth imitating. And we need you all to initiate to them and to say, come follow my example, not because I have it all together, not because I'm the perfect Christian, but because I want to be engaged in this war and in this battle, and I want to do it with you. We need men and women to offer themselves to the next generation. The last thing that we see in this passage is that not only did they received the gospel, not only did they reproduce their lives, but this was a church that reached the world. Paul tells us two things about the impact of the Thessalonians. First, he tells us that the word of the Lord sounded forth from them in Macedonia and Achaia. The Greek word for this is exekio, which is the same word that we get our word echo from. It means that the word echoed forth to those in Macedonia and Achaia, to the surrounding regions. And I, I love this picture because think about what's an echo. An echo isn't a new message, but an echo is a repeated message that just gets passed along. So Paul's essentially saying this. He's saying, he's telling us that the Thessalonians were a sounding board for the gospel. The gospel had come to them and it bounced off of them and went forth to Macedonia and Achaia. They received it and then sent it back out. You know, this is important for us because sometimes we often think that it's too hard to say the right words in evangelism. 
You know, I've talked with dozens of students and church members over the years who have said that one of the primary reasons that they didn't share the gospel is because they just, they lacked the confidence to do so. They just thought, I'm going to screw it up. I'm going to mess it up. I'm not going to say the right words. Well, what this passage is telling us is that our responsibility to proclaim the gospel has nothing to do with us coming up with a new message. All it is is just repeating or echoing the same message that's been preached for hundreds and thousands of years. That's really all evangelism is. It's just repeating an old message over and over again and watching the power of God be at work. You know, the second thing that Paul tells us is that not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth, but that their faith has gone forth everywhere. And I love how Paul adds this line at the end. He said, not only has their faith gone forth everywhere, but he, it does so so that we need not say anything. Basically, he's saying, look, if we showed back up in Thessalonica, if we returned, we would say, they're doing what needs to be done. We don't need to proclaim the gospel because they've been preaching it. Everywhere we go, the gospel has been and is being preached. I just wonder, could you imagine what that would look like if a group of people came to Easton to plant a church? What if a group of people came to Easton and said, we want to plant a church here, and they showed up at the city, and they started having spiritual conversations, and they realized everywhere we go, the gospel has gone forth from Cornerstone. In the school, in the neighborhoods, at, the, at workplaces, the gospel is going forth here. We've, we've got it covered. And so the, the missionaries or the, the people planning the church would say, you know, we don't need to plant a church here. Let's go on to the next city. Maybe let's move to Phillipsburg or to Bethlehem or somewhere else because this congregation has it covered. How powerful would that be if that could be said about Lafayette College or downtown Easton or Crayola? Now, Paul wasn't trying to say that literally every person in the world had heard of them. But he was trying to say that their faith was going to places beyond their control. Their faith was reaching people that they had never intended to reach. You know, as I was preparing this week, I was wondering what, what this kind of spiritual awakening would look like for you all. What could it look like for your faith to go beyond Macedonia and Achaia and beyond? For you, what would it look like to go to Easton, the Lehigh Valley, and beyond? I just want to take a minute to dream with you for a second. You know, there are roughly maybe 600, 700 members and kind of regular attenders that come here to Cornerstone, to, to the multiple services and campuses. What if each one of you said, we're going to commit this next year just to share the gospel with one person once a week? We're just going to have one gospel conversation with one new person each week. We're just going to find someone, maybe it's at the grocery store, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's somebody you work with, maybe it's someone at your kid's school, and you're just going to have a spiritual conversation, and you're going to echo forth the gospel. Well, if that happened, then over 33,000 people would have heard the gospel in just one year. I looked up and it said the current city population for Easton, so that's just the city, is about 26,000 people. That means that it would be realistic for Cornerstone and the congregation to share the gospel with the entire city of Easton in just over nine months. That's just once a week. 
What if it was once every day? How many people would hear the gospel? How many people's lives would be transformed and get to receive the power of the gospel? You know, I think if that happened, there'd be so many crazy stories of what God would be doing all over, not just Easton, but all over the Lehigh Valley, all over this region, as the gospel went forth from you all. And so I know that you're doing some of that. I love, I love hearing testimonies about what God's doing through Cornerstone. I love what you're doing with Riverside. I love the ways that you guys are thinking intentionally and you're sending people that, to Africa and other places and supporting missionaries all over. In some ways, I think you guys are living out a lot of what the Thessalonians lived out. And so I would say what Paul said, he said it a couple times in this book, he says, just keep doing this more and more. And so that would be my encouragement to you all is do these things. If you're not doing them, then do them. And if you are doing them, then keep doing them more and more. So in conclusion, what lessons can we learn from this young missional group of believers in Thessalonica? Well, they were a church, again, that had received the gospel powerfully. They were a church that was reproducing their lives and they were a church that was reaching the world for God and his kingdom and his glory. So let me close and pray that we would be this kind of people and that we would imitate the Thessalonian church. Let's pray together.